Hey, and welcome to episode three of the MTG Collection Builder podcast, a podcast about collecting Magic the Gathering cards. I'm Brian, the lead and only developer of MTGCollectionBuilder.com, and in this podcast we're going to be covering a lot of stuff that's relevant to Magic collectors, including things like news of new releases, recent bans, that sort of thing. If you don't know the show's format, we're going to talk about the news first, and we're going to talk about the card of the week, and then the topic of the week, which this week is organizing your collection. I think it's a pretty important thing to talk about. If you haven't heard of MTGCollectionBuilder.com, it's a website where you can track your Magic collection and how much it's worth. It'll show you progress bars for each set, like which cards you're missing for that set. It'll give you buttons to easily buy the cards that you're missing, and it's absolutely free to use, so feel free to check it out at mtgcollectionbuilder.com. Both the website and the show are also brought to you by my patrons over at Patreon, and I again just wanted to really thank you guys for all the support you've been giving me. Uh, with the increased funds, I'm going to be able to make a ton of serious infrastructure upgrades to the website as I get ready to release a new version, and just thank you, it's awesome. More importantly, though, I've been getting a lot of great feedback through my patrons on Discord. It's been a really good feedback loop where I'll get feedback, I'll implement a change, I'll get feedback on the change. It's, it's been really iterative and awesome, way faster than email or Facebook. If you wanted to support the site directly, you can get access to things like the Discord I mentioned, ad removal for your account, monthly giveaways, I send a postcard if you're at a high enough tier. Feel free to check it out at patreon.com slash mtgcollectionbuilder if you're interested. I also just recently announced a monthly giveaway for this month on Patreon, which is a Textlist Full Art Lightning Helix, which I think is pretty awesome and has quite a bit of history behind it. Anyone who's a patron in the month of February will be eligible for the giveaway, and the winner will be announced in very early March. And now let's jump into our news segment. The first news item is a new set that's been announced by Wizards of the Coast called Jumpstart. And it's a new way to play Magic in a limited environment where you get to skip the deck building. And it comes out July 3rd. I think this is a really good idea, and I'll get more into that in a moment. But right now, let's learn more about it. It's a booster box that comes with 20 card boosters, and each booster has a theme. You might have goblins, walls, Phyrexians, cats, pirates, unicorns. And there are variations within each theme, so one cat booster would be slightly different than another cat booster. Although they've mentioned that there are mythic rare packs that won't have any variants, there will just be a single card list. Most likely unicorns and maybe a couple others. And to play, you take two of these 20 card boosters, you shuffle them together, and that's it. You have a limited deck. You might have the cat pirate deck or the Dr. Garrick deck is, is an example they actually gave. And one in three boosters will contain an extra rare just to make it a little more spicy. And the set is composed of 500 reprints, 37 of which are new cards which are legal only in Legacy, Vintage, and Commander. Time will tell whether or not there are unique printings for the reprints. It depends whether or not they include the original set symbol for the set the card came from. We'll see. If they're all unique reprintings, then there will be new entries on MTG Collection Builder. But if not, then they'll be physically indistinguishable from the original card that they're a reprint of. Wizards also mentioned that the set is closely tied to Core Set 2021. And relevant to collectors, in each pack there's going to be a basic land with art that matches the pack's theme. Most of them will be brand new art, but some of them will be from Core Set 2021. The way I picture this is that if you have the cat booster, you might have a cat-themed forest or something like that. It's kind of crazy what kind of ideas you might come up with where the theme of the pack goes into the basic land, and I think this will be a pretty good collector's item. So like I said, it's going to be released on July 3rd, but the pre-release would be June 20th to 21st for this set, and it's also coming to Magic Arena. I think this is a really good idea. I think both card evaluation and deck building are huge barriers to entry into the hobby. And as much as I love drafting, it is really hard to learn. Um, and this reminds me a lot of Keyforge, which is a, another game, also designed by Richard Garfield, go figure, where you buy a random deck instead of a booster pack. 
and then you play with that random deck. So you don't have to learn how to deck build or anything. And this seems similar, but you still get that booster pack feel of random cards. And I think it's a great little hybrid approach to it. It's pretty awesome. I look forward to seeing how that plays out. Next on the news, a new Secret Layer drop series was announced. Big surprise. They are really raking in the cash with these. And this one is to celebrate International Women's Day in 2020. And it's going to include five foil extended alternate art frames of the most powerful and influential women from the history of magic. These include Captain Sisse, Marin of Clan Nell Toth, Narset's Enlightened Master, Una, Queen of the Fae, and Saskia the Unyielding. It's being priced at $49.99, and it's going to be released Sunday, March 8th, for a 24-hour period, just like all the other drop series. And the next item that is somewhat relevant to collectors is that the Challenger decks for 2020 have been announced, along with full deck lists. These will be four decks, and they're standard legal 60-card decks, including a 15-card sideboard. And they're meant to be competitive at your local FNM. They kind of represent what Wizards believes the meta to be at the time that they release them. They're almost always all reprints, so they don't affect us collectors too much because they're not unique printings of a card. A card from a Challenger deck won't look any different than a card from a booster pack, so you're not really collecting a different instance of that card. But sometimes it's a great way to get expensive cards cheaper, depending on the price of the cards within each deck. Uh, these decks include Allied Fires, Final Adventure, Cavalcade Charge, and Flash of Ferocity. You can check out the full deck list at magic.wizards.com and evaluate for yourself whether or not this purchase makes sense for you. If you're interested in getting into standard play, it might. Or if you're just interested in these from an investor's perspective, then it might be worth your time too. Next on the news, and really relevant for collectors, are the announcements regarding Commander 2020. There's a super long article by Gavin Verhey on Wizards' website if you want to read it straight from the source. But the gist of it is that Wizards has noticed that more players are getting into Magic and going straight to playing Commander instead of becoming Magic players and then later branching off into Commander. So they're planning many more products toward Commander players with that in mind. The first major change they're making is that they're aligning Commander decks with the release of base sets. So when the next set comes out, Ikoria, Layer of Behemoths, they're also alongside it releasing five new Commander decks. There are going to be 71 new cards printed, uh, set in the world of Ikoria, and these cards are not available in booster packs from Ikoria or anything like that. They're unique for Commander, they're designed for Commander, they're only legal in eternal formats like Legacy, Vintage, and Commander. And this product also replaces the Planeswalker decks that would have accompanied Ikoria. And these are the Commander decks you know and are used to. They're standard big box, including the oversized cards. The second new product they're introducing is with Zendikar Rising, they're also releasing Commander decks alongside it, but this will be more for new players. It'll be only two decks. It'll be mostly reprints, but there will be three new cards in each of them. They also come in a smaller box, like the Brawl decks, so there's probably no oversized Commander, I'm pretty sure. And they also replace the Planeswalker decks that would have accompanied the Zendikar Rising set. On that note, Planeswalker decks aren't gone. They will be returning in Core Set 2021. So the third Commander product that they announced is the Commander Collection, which is only available in WPN stores, so your local game stores that are registered with Wizards of the Coast and they have enough activity to be an official store. The Commander Collection will be eight reprint cards in a box, and they're themed to a specific color with all new art. The first one will be for the color green, and they've shown some teasers of art, but they haven't revealed any explicit cards for it yet, or any pricing information. But they did let us know that there are two variants of this product. There's the regular variant and the premium variant. The premium is all foil, and it's only available at premium WPN stores, so the big game stores have got a lot of activity. Whereas the regular printings are available at all WPN stores, not just the premium ones. But we're not done yet, because there's a fourth and final 
Commander product that they've announced called Commander Legends. And this is actually Draft meets Commander, which has me pretty excited because I love drafting. But I'm a little lukewarm on Commander. They're going to be creating 70 new legends with which you'll be able to build Commander decks. And like with Jumpstart, you'll have 20 card booster packs with which you'll draft. They haven't announced exactly how the draft will work. They've only teased some of the artwork, so we don't know any specific printing just yet. It's going to be larger than a normal set, which will be interesting from a collecting perspective. And it's going to be a mix of reprints and new cards, which are legal in Legacy, Vintage, and Commander. Alongside this, they're also including two new Commander decks, like in Zendikar Rising. These will be released alongside Commander Legends, and these will include a few new cards as well, but will most likely be geared toward newer players. And that's it for the Commander news item. There's quite a lot to digest there. And the last news item for the week is that Ikoria booster boxes will now come with box toppers. This is really surprising. Box toppers, if you don't know, are a little mini booster that ha usually has a single card that's random that is included inside of a booster box on top of the boosters. They did these for 8th and 9th edition way back in the day, including oversized cards. But they came back for Ultimate Masters with extended art cards that were really high in value, including Liliana of the Veil, if I recall correctly. And they're coming back for Ikoria, but so far we don't know what which cards will be in there. Wizards describe these as being behemoth-sized, unlike anything we've ever seen before. I don't know if they mean this figuratively or literally, like they're going to be giant cards. But it's worth noting that this is in addition to a buy a box promo. So buy a box promos are limited by quantity, so you need to pre-order your box at your local game store really early on in a set to get yourself a buy a box promo. But these box toppers will be available in every booster box because it's sealed inside of it. So this, I think this is the second time that they've done box toppers in addition to a buy a box promo. Because before, box toppers were an alternative to buy a box promos, but I could be wrong about that. And that's it for the news. And now let's move on to the card of the week. And this week, the card is Tybalt the Fiend-Blooded. If you don't know, Tybalt the Fiend-Blooded is a two-mana Planeswalker. He costs red-red, so two total mana, all of which must be red. For a Planeswalker Tybalt, he's a Mythic Rare, and he has three Planeswalker abilities. He starts at two loyalty. And his first ability is a plus one ability, meaning after you use it, you gain a loyalty. And it reads, draw a card, then discard a card at random. His second ability, which is a minus four ability, reads, Tybalt the Fiend-Blooded deals damage equal to the number of cards in target player's hand to that player. So if the player is holding three cards, they're going to take three damage. His final ability is a minus six, and it reads, gain control of all creatures until end of turn. Untap them. They gain haste until end of turn. So... The idea here was that they wanted to see how far they could push Planeswalkers, especially early in their design, to make them cheap in terms of mana, at only two mana. But Tybalt is famous for being the worst Planeswalker ever printed. He's had two printings. His first one was in Avacyn Restored, which also, by the way, is considered one of the worst draft experiences ever for modern sets. And he also was printed in Soren vs. Tybalt Dual Decks. So let's talk about his abilities and learn why he sucks. His plus one ability, draw a card and then discard a card at random, really gives you no agency over what's going on, and it doesn't affect the board state in any way, so it doesn't protect him. You play him on turn two, and then you draw a card and discard a card at random. Is it a good card? Is it a bad card? We don't know. Like, you may have drawn a good card, and you might just discard it. You may have drawn a mediocre card and then discarded the best card in your hand. I suppose you could build a deck with discards in mind that reward you for whenever you discard a card. That's a pretty big stretch, especially given how little he actually does. The minus four ability, dealing damage to an opponent equal to the number of cards that they have in their hand, 
is really expensive given his base loyalty of two. You first have to plus one him twice, meanwhile he's not protecting himself in any way, and then you can deal some damage directly to a player. Effects like this are usually pretty bad, uh, Lava Axe being a classic example, because they don't affect the board state in any way. They don't get rid of the 3-3 flyer that's killing you or Tybalt. They just deal some damage to the player, and while the goal of the game primarily is to get the player's health total down to zero, you need to do more. You need to be able to control the board and then go for the kill. This is a lot of work for what might just be one or two damage by the time you actually get enough loyalty to do this. You need at least five loyalty to activate this ability without Tybalt leaving the battlefield. His last ability, gaining control of all creatures till the end of turn, and then they gain haste, and they're untapped. That can be an okay game finisher. It could be kind of shenanigany in a, in a commander deck, too, with a lot of players, but it's minus six loyalty to do this, and you start at two. So you're talking about five turns of drawing a card and discarding a card at random, which, by the way, is really bad if you have no cards in hand, because you're just drawing and discarding, not accomplishing anything, other than milling yourself out. I guess you have graveyard shenanigans. Well, whatever, I'm not, I'm not defending this card. So anyway, getting control of all creatures till the end of the turn, untapping them, and getting haste, that can win you the game, but it's really expensive and really conditional. Most Planeswalkers' final abilities are game winners. They will win the game, if, and you'll get rewarded if you get that high up in loyalty to activate it. This one is just too random. You don't know what the board state will be at that time. And accordingly, the community agrees with me, even today, this is a $1 Mythic Rare foil that you can buy. So buy one today. Super exciting. Collect it. It is actually a fun collector's piece to have just to talk about the history of the card, and lots of people had fun with it on Reddit back in a Tay Day. You'd see pictures of altars at game stores where people would be tearing up Tybalt if they opened him in a booster pack, and they would just offer his ashes to the altar. It was, it was pretty funny. And that's the card of the week, Tybalt the Fiendblooded. And now let's move on to our main topic, organizing your magic collection, part one. So why would you want to organize your collection? If you just have your cards in a box, you can dig through it when you need them. What's the big deal, right? Well, it really does depend on your collection goals and how you use your collection, whether you're a magic player or not, what formats you play. But in general, organizing your collection makes it a lot easier to find what you're looking for. If you're a standard or modern player and you know which set a card is in, or you just look it up online, it can be really easy to go to that set's folder, flip it open, everything's alphabetized within colors, you just flip to the red pages, you find your goblin guide, and then you're good to go. So that's one of the main reasons to collect for me, is just organization. The second reason is that it makes your collection browsable. If you have your collection sorted in such a way that it's easy to browse through it, you can really enjoy it like an old book, where you can go through a specific set. Oh, let's look at Arabian Nights, and wow, look at this old art and all these cool cards. I remember playing this card. I remember when this card was 60 cents. It becomes more of an experience you can share with others. Another reason that comes to mind for me is... There's a peace of mind that you get when you have mastery over your collection, and this is a recurring theme for me. If your collection is a mess, if you literally have it scattered over bookshelves and your bed and your closet, it's going to bring you stress. And I really believe that when you walk into a room and it's a mess, it kind of mentally taxes you. It takes mental effort for your brain to tune out the noise in order to focus on what's important. And that's how people can really live in a mess for such a long time is that their brain has learned to tune it out. But I believe that this takes some effort and drains some energy out of you. And that applies to your household in general, to your room in general, and, and I believe your collection. If you have mastery of your collection, everything's in its place, you get this nice feeling, like a nice sigh. And this ties in a lot with the KonMari process, which I might talk about later. And along that note, I do believe that once your collection is organized, it will really bring you joy. 
and that, and that's difficult to quantify, but I think it's a worthwhile effort for the long-term gain. An organized collection can also become a decorative art piece in its own right, whether it's in a game room or a den or in the corner of your living room or office or bedroom. There's a huge difference between a box of cards in a closet versus some folders beautifully labeled and organized that people can ask questions about and you can start interesting conversations and share your joy of the game with others. And the absolutely most important reason to organize your collection is that your significant other will finally love you. I'm half kidding, um, but seriously, if you have a significant other that doesn't share the hobby with you, and they perceive the hobby to be like this mess of cards that is disorganized and cluttered, and maybe they peeked at your TCG player charges on your credit card, it could be a source of negativity, right? But if you have your collection nice and organized and even elevate it to the point of it being a showpiece, something decorative and cool, they're going to see it in a more positive light. So definitely have an organized collection. Seriously, it's important. So let's talk about how to do that. What are tools that you might need to organize your collection? Honestly, all you need is a flat surface, like a table. Preferably a dedicated space, so you can return to it here and there. You can buy fold-out tables pretty cheap if you want like to buy one, a small one just to dedicate for this purpose. But your dining room table is fine. And then optionally, you can get three ring binders with card sleeve pages. This would be my preferred method of storing and organizing my collection. For bulk items, you can get BCW storage boxes, the 5,000 card count boxes. But they're really expensive to buy online. I would try to find those locally instead. Online, they can go for like 20 bucks. But if you pop over to a local trade show or a game shop, you may be able to get them cheaper. And the most important optional purchase for me is an Ultra Pro or any other brand uh, card sorting tray. This, a lot, this has little pockets that you can put cards in that really helps organize. Instead of just having them in piles, it might get knocked down by your cat. Happens to me all the time. And if you want an upgrade over the BCW storage boxes for bulk, I recommend the KMC card barrier boxes. They only hold a thousand cards, but it's hard plastic. It snaps shut. You can hold it upside down and do the Tolerant Community College uh, shake test all day and it won't fall apart. And it's way better, more secure storage, especially for cubes. I found that the cardboard boxes will sometimes chafe your cards a little bit and you don't want that. Another optional purchase you can make to prepare for organizing your collection is a jeweler's loop. It's basically a little magnifying glass that jewelers use. And it can be useful for identifying older cards based on the difference in bevel and also a good way to identify fakes, although that's way outside the scope of this episode. But we might talk about that in the future because it is a problem. And if you're curious about the binders, card pages, and folder templates I use, feel free to check out the FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions, on mtggcollectionbuilder.com. There I, I kind of tell you everything that I use in terms of the binders, what size, the pages I use to put the cards in, and also the Photoshop templates that I've made that you're free to use to label the sides of your folders and the fronts and the backs. So feel free to check that out. Whether you have the folders in vertically or horizontally is up to you. I know some people have expressed concerns about card pages bending over time if you put in the folders vertically, but I've never had an issue with this in eight years, 10 years of collecting magic. So you can give it a whirl, see how you feel about it. Maybe don't put in the super expensive cards until you're satisfied with the collection method. But if you have any other ideas with how to do this, feel free to reach out to me. I'm, I'm happy to hear about it. So let's say you bought some of the optional purchases, or maybe you didn't buy any of them at all, and you're ready to organize your cards. What, what's the method for doing this? What's the process? There are a lot of different ways to do it, and some of it depends on your collection goals. But in general, I feel like you want a process that you can do in bits and pieces. You can chunk it together, because if you try to do everything at once, it's really overwhelming. And I think that the end goal should really be to have all of your cards separated by set, and then within each set, the cards are sorted by either the collector number or what the collector number would have been because collector numbers did not exist in older sets. 
This has the really nice side effect of sorting your cards in Wuberg order. White, blue, black, red, green. And by the way, if you ever forget this official order of colors, just look at the back of a magic card and start at the top and go clockwise. And it also put multicolored cards and artifacts at the end, followed by lands at the very end. So it's pretty consistent across sets. However, reading each of these small numbers would be really difficult, even for the sets that have them. So we're not going to sort them by looking at the numbers. We'll, we'll have a better way of doing it. So here's my four-step process. And again, let's make the assumption that the goal is to have each set within a binder and the cards in order by collector number. And we're going to assume that you're starting with a pile of totally random cards from across different sets. And it's okay if your organizing goal is different. I feel like some of these steps will still really help you out. So step one is pretty easy. Separate all of your cards into piles by set. To do this, I would use a card organizer, look at each card, and put it into its own socket or slot based on the set that the card belongs to. For newer cards, this is easy. You can just match the set symbol on the card, which is in the center right. For older sets, it gets a little more tricky, so I, in the show notes, I have a link to a flowchart showing you how to identify the older cards. It can depend on their border color, whether or not there's a copyright date, what the copyright date is, how sharply the corners are cut, the details of the bevel within the card frame, all sorts of crazy stuff. But you'll get pretty good at it, and the jeweler's loop can be helpful with looking at some of the details, but it's totally optional and not needed. That's step one. Separate all of your cards into piles by set. So you start with a pile of 1,000 cards, and by the end of it you have 300 Theros, 400 Return to Ravnica, and so on. They're separated by set. For step two, for each set, and just do them one at a time, separate all of the cards by color. So there's no sorting yet, but a sorting stray is still great for this. So you'll go through the pile of cards for that set, and you'll just go through it, pull out all the white cards, and then put them in their own slot in your sorting tray. Then go through all the blue cards, put them in their own slot, black, red, and green as well. Put all multicolored cards together, artifacts together, and then colorless lands together as well. And by the end of step two, you'll have all of your cards within a particular set separated by color. And trust me, this is going to make your life a lot easier for step three. As a side note, I highly recommend doing this kind of sorting either in front of a TV, while listening to music, or a podcast. I especially love podcasts for this because you don't have to take your eyes off the cards like you would with a TV. And there are a lot of really awesome podcasts out there. I recommend Mark Rosewater's Drive to Work podcast, which is a ton of cool information about the history of magic and game design, and he'll go over every card in a set and talk about design stories. It's really cool. Limited resources, which I've mentioned before. You can learn how to play Booster Draft and Sealed really well from those guys. And if you happen to be a web developer, which is probably a small subsection of my listeners, I really recommend Syntax by Wes Boss and Scott Tolinsky. It's a great way to keep up to date with technology. So you have your podcast going now and you're ready for step three. So far you've divided all of your cards by set, and then within each set you divided that set by color. So now you're going to alphabetize within each color, that's step three. And this is functionally the same as sorting by collector number, but it works for older sets because they don't have collector numbers. And you can chunk this out too. So instead of trying to sort 274 cards alphabetically, what I like to do is go through all the cards and then put them into four buckets. The first bucket is A through E, the second one's F through L, third one's M through S, and the fourth one is T through Z. And you just put the card in those buckets. You don't have to sort really accurately yet. It just, oh, it's between A and E in the name. I'm gonna put in the A and E bucket. And again, the card sorting trays are great for this. So you can even put little sticky labels to help you out. Once you do that, then for each bucket you can alphabetize, and that becomes much easier because you have fewer cards you're working with. And the more room you have to spread out to do this, the better. 
because it tends to be faster to alphabetize when you can just put cards really far away from each other and then put cards between them, they go alphabetically between them, and before you know it, you're done. And that's step three, alphabetizing within each color, preferably by chunking the alphabetization. And step four is putting them into a three-ring binder with card pages, because you're actually done. By alphabetizing within each color, you've sorted by collector number. You can you start with white, blue, black, red, green, multicolored, artifacts, lands, and for the most part, that will be correctly sorted by collector number. There are a few little exceptions where colorless non-artifacts will sometimes go first in order. And some of the multicolor, depending on the cards, will go in a different order. But for the most part, that'll get you there. So I would just start one color at a time and put them in order in a three-ring binder. You can comfortably fit four X of each card per pocket, but once you start going over that, you might loosen the pocket permanently and then they would just slip out of the folder, which you definitely don't want to do. So I recommend four X of each card per pocket. Especially since I kind of love that as a collection goal to get 4x of every common and uncommon, 1x for every rare or mythic. You can even do this while you're alphabetizing. So once you finish white, you can just put them straight in the folder, which is nice because it makes more room on your table, and then move on to blue and so on. Optionally, you can add tokens and emblems alphabetically at the end, but I don't have a strong feeling about this. And optionally, you can also print out folder templates to pimp your folders out, and you can check out the templates online at mtgcollectionbuilder.com, and they're free for you to use. And that's the basic process, so it's, it's really not that complicated. Start by dividing your cards into sets, separate by color for each set, alphabetize within each color, and then put them away. Well, I recommend putting them in a three-ring binder with card pages because it's very browsable and, and cool for me. You might have different collection goals in mind, so you might want to just throw them in a bulk box. You might want more than 4x of each card, in which case the folders may not work well for you. I highly recommend sturdier boxes over cardboard boxes if your cards have any value. And if you're putting away really expensive cards, like over 100 or 200 bucks, I would consider sleeving the card before putting it in a card pocket in the folder, or even not putting it in a folder at all if you're worried about sag over time or anything like that. So there's really no wrong answer here. Whatever your collection goal is and whatever your organization goal, that's totally fine. You might just want one of each of the Power 9 cards in a frame in your bedroom, and that's totally fine. So after you sorted your collection, you probably want an inventory of what you have and that's where MTG Collection Builder comes in. That's, that's why I built the site. I wanted to know what my cards are worth, how many I had in each set, and it's really helped me out. You can also use other tools out there. I used to use MTG Studio before I made MTG Collection Builder. And there may be other similar tools out there. Feel free to check them out if MTG Collection Builder is not right for you. And also if you have feedback from MTG Collection Builder, just feel free to hit me up too. I'm, I'm looking to improve the site, especially the next version. But I do have a little trick for you if you do use MTG Collection Builder. I think it's much faster to record cards in bulk. The add card tool is great, and that is what I would recommend at first. You just have your pile of cards, or you have your cards in a folder, and as you flip through the folder, you just use the quick add page to, you just type part of the card name, put in your quantity, hit enter, it refreshes, you can just do one card at a time really mechanically, it auto-focuses the text input for you, it's pretty quick. But if you play a lot of limited, it turns out that you actually collect four of each common and uncommon almost naturally during your draft career for that set, and by the time you're done, you're going to have 4x or more of most of them. So what I like to do is, as I sort them out, I only put four of that card in my folders, and then I note which commons and uncommons I don't have 4x of, and then I go to mtgcollectionbuilder.com and I say, hey, using the mass import tool, set all commons and uncommons to 4x, hit, hit the button, and then they're all set to 4x, but before I click save, go ahead and just edit the one or two cards that I only have two or three of because they're bad draft cards and then hit save, and then you've recorded hundreds of cards with just a few clicks. 
I find that trick to be pretty useful, especially if you collect cards by drafting. So earlier I referred to this as part one of organizing your collection, and the reason I did this is because I'm still learning this process myself, and I think it's really different for a lot of people, and in my Discord channel recently I've had a lot of really good feedback and advice from other collectors about how they collect their magic sets and how they organize them. And feel free to reach out to me with ideas if you have any, I'd love to hear them. And that just about does it for this episode of the MTG Collection Builder Podcast. Thank you for joining me. If you have any suggestions for the podcast or the website, or insights into how to organize your collection, feel free to reach out to me either via email at brian at mtgcb.com, via Facebook where I'm MTG Collection Builder, or Twitter where I'm at mtg underscore cb. And if you want to support the website or the podcast, feel free to head on over to patreon.com slash mtgcollectionbuilder and check out the pledge levels. You can get access to monthly giveaways, exclusive updates, add removal free account, and much more. Just recently, we had a patron-only poll to decide whether the new website would be dark theme or light theme by default, and, and that was pretty cool to get insight and feedback on something that might seem small, but is really important to me. We're going to have more polls like that, and I'm really looking forward to them. Thanks again for joining me, and I'll see you guys next time. And welcome to another secret segment of the podcast where you must gather your party before venturing forth. I'm really excited about Baldur's Gate 3. And today's secret segment topic is actually personal productivity. So check this out. I'm, I'm a software engineer, right? And I recently moved twice in a year. And I run this big side project, MTGCB. Plus I have other little side projects. Plus I have a lot of varied gaming interests from video games, Magic the Gathering, hundreds of board games now. And I'm just starting my foray into tabletop board games. Plus, I have my family to keep in touch with, my in-laws to keep in touch with, and friends. And all of this combined can sometimes make it really challenging to focus on personal productivity, whether it's getting errands done around the house or working on programming a magic website, that sort of thing. So I really got into self-help books, uh, audiobooks in particular. And I just wanted to share with you guys what I've kind of learned over the last few years about both energy and motivation. So the first thing, step one, I guess I would call it, is mental health. And I really want to thank the professor from Tularan Community College over on YouTube for speaking out about this. As, as a mini celebrity in the magic community, it, it's so cool to have seen him talk about his personal dealings with depression and things like that. And I think other celebrities should do the same. And if you suffer from depression or any other mental illness like I have in the past, you know, seek therapy. I know it can look expensive. But it actually can be quite affordable if you budget for it, and it is covered by some insurance. And since we all come from different backgrounds and have had different life experiences, we all have different advantages and disadvantages, and sometimes we need a little bit of help to sort things out. And you're really not alone, and I know there's great potential in you and everyone I meet. Like, we're all growing into better people all the time, and mental health, I think, is where it starts. Like, it has to be addressed, and you have to be comfortable in your own skin and with your life and your thoughts and really understand yourself to move forward in anything that you want to do. Step two, I would say, is cardio. And um, I'm pretty serious that this is like one of the most important things for personal productivity. I recommend that when you get home after work, either before or after dinner, do either an hour of walking or get the Couch to 5K app, which is pretty awesome. It's on Android and iOS. And it'll get you to start running from nothing with really easy 20 to 30 minute sessions. It'll just get a little harder every day. But you, you really grow accustomed to it. And I'm super unathletic, and this has still been really transformative for me. I'm not like super fit or anything, but it's increased my energy, my mood, and my focus. It's a great time to listen to podcasts, and I love it so much that I have both a treadmill and an elliptical in front of a TV now. And I sometimes even forget I'm exercising. It's awesome. 
I particularly recommend ellipticals since they're lower impact on your knees, but I've really been enjoying my treadmill more recently. That's been pretty nice too. So once you've got your mental health in order and cardio, which again, believe me, it really improves your energy and gives you a better mood and ability to focus. This is where I would really start consuming literature about personal productivity. And I'm going to give you guys a whirlwind tour of all of the audiobooks I've consumed recently and what I've learned from them. I really feel that these are foundational. The first book is Getting Things Done by David Allen. And this book really helped me organize life stuff, quote unquote, into concrete next action items or documentation. And it really got me organized about thinking about everything in life as being some sort of input that needed to be processed. And it makes me feel as good about the things I'm not doing as the things that I am doing. Uh, to manage this, I use apps like Todoist to manage my to-do lists. It's really nice because it lets you prioritize and schedule to-dos. And I use Notion, which is basically a Wikipedia for yourself, where you can just create documents and edit them. And I use this to organize both my projects, including MTGCB, and my personal life, where I can like look up, hey, when did I get my car service? And what work did I have done? Or what did my cats weigh last year? Like You can really get organized, and it's pretty cool. One thing about getting things done, though, it's definitely written from the perspective of a rich white guy. Like, I don't have a secretary to manage my entry like he does in the book, but it's still a lot of really good advice, and I highly recommend the book. Quick note, I recommend all of these in audiobook. I understand that it's really hard to actually read a physical book nowadays with so much media and internet, it's hard to find the time. So audiobooks, while you do other things like the aforementioned cardio, I think are the way to go. The second book I want to recommend is Drive by Daniel Pink. And this one didn't really have anything that actionable, but it really helped me understand human motivation and how it's kind of changed in society over time. And I feel like it really should be mandatory reading for every manager out there ever. His main points is that you should give people, especially in knowledge work fields, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. But a lot of companies still treat you like you're working in a factory production line. And it really shouldn't be that way, but it, it helped me understand human motivation and how to hack my own motivation. The third book I want to recommend is War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And this is the most motivational book I've ever read. In the book, he introduces a concept of resistance with a capital R, at least that's the way it sounds in the audiobook. And it's really a dark force that gets in the way of productivity, and we all have it. I know you've probably been there where you had a project you had to work on, and suddenly vacuuming the house looked really appealing, right? Like... You're doing something else that's kind of chory as an excuse to not work on the thing that you're avoiding. And the reality is, is that you really have to get into something before you get into that flow state that lets you keep working at it. And we just have to get our work done. So it was a super cool book, War of Art. Not to be confused with Art of War, which is also a really good book, but way older and not related to this topic. At least I think. Next book I want to recommend is The Power of Habit which really helped me understand habit building and it gave it a pretty good history from the perspective of marketing and companies. And this is an important thing to learn too because you can take an existing habit and tweak it just a little bit in order to make it a good habit. The book goes into a pretty good detail about that. Now the book I want to recommend is Deep Work. This one really helped emphasize the importance of being able to get into a state where you could perform deep work instead of just shallow work. Because a lot of the work we do during the day really is shallow work. Think about emails, shuffling calendar events, editing documents. Real value comes from deep work, and distraction avoidance is pretty key along with learning how to segment your time. The last book I want to recommend is Flow, which is a really old but foundational piece by Mihai Mishek's Mihai. It's based on his studies on flow state, and it, it's referenced by a lot of the other books. Basically, flow state is where 
you're in a state where time just seems to flow by and you're really engaged with something, you lose track of time, you're in this nice little iterative loop where you're getting feedback from the task as you perform it, and you're really in the zone. That's another way of referring to flow. And I would consider this more of a historical curio. It's kind of old, plays a lot of like silly music. It says switch it to the side B of the track to continue. But it, I really appreciated listening to it just for the historical and scientific perspective. And this is not a book, but I also recommend looking into the Pomodoro timer technique. This is where when you're working on a task or project, you chunk your time into 25 minute chunks with five minute breaks. And you do this using a, a timer. Pomodoro is Italian for tomato. And the guy that invented this, he used a little tomato kitchen timer to do this for himself. And it really forces you to think about, okay, for the next 25 minutes, I'm on this specific task. All social media is closed. I don't see emails or notifications from Discord. I'm just focused on this work. And then when you get your five minute break, then you can kind of step back, go, to, go back to your social media and then come back to the task. And then each time you do this successfully, you earn a Pomodoro and you can give yourself rewards or goals for doing X Pomodoros a day or a week or a month toward a project that you're passionate about. Something that's really helped me out too is listening to music while I work. I, for whatever reason, grew up and never listened to music at all. I just wasn't exposed to it. And now it's really helped me focus my thoughts because I think often I'm thinking about too many different things at once. Things I want to get done in the future, concerns, ambiguities about something. But music will kind of shut all that off and then I can just focus on one thing. And apparently I really like really old video game soundtracks. Unreal Tournament 2004 soundtrack is particularly good for programming. Check it out if you're interested. And I guess a bonus book I want to mention is The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. It's not directly related to personal productivity, and I'm sure you've heard of her Netflix show by now. But it was really an awesome book to go through, and I, I went through it strictly where I actually made a little journal, like she said, and wrote down my reason for wanting to tidy up my home and... I wanted mastery of my domain is what I wrote down. And I feel like that applies to life in general, whether it's your magic collection or organizing your house. It, there's a great joy in getting the mastery or control over it, where it starts off as a mess or you have too much clutter in the garage. And her process of going category by category, it was really genius. And by the end of it, we threw away like 30 garbage bags of stuff we didn't need or donated it. And it was really rewarding to do. I highly recommend you check that out as well. And just as a final takeaway for this topic, make the time and really know your energy level. So if you want to get something done, you need to make the time for it. And I understand if we live in a family situation where there's a lot of distraction in the home, it can, it can be difficult to make the time. But if you just communicate openly and, and carve out a little time for yourself, you'll be surprised about how much you can get done in a single Pomodoro. And know your energy level too and which tasks you can accomplish. Sometimes we don't have the energy to do programming or whatever it is that we're interested in. But you might have the energy to research something that you took a note about or to make a couple phone calls that you need to get out of the way to schedule a doctor's appointment or something like that. So learn your energy levels at different times and which tasks you're capable of doing when you're at that energy level. But it's totally okay to just rest too. Like do whatever's fulfilling for yourself. And just chip away at things just a little at a time. And I think you'll find that you'll get more mastery over your life, uh, whether or not it's just magic collection or cleaning out your garage. And I think Focusing on your personal productivity a little bit can be really rewarding, or at least it has been for me.